Hi and welcome. You're listening to Smooth Jazz Recordings with Drake Bowling. Hey! Elaine Murray. And me, Ryan Lark. Today's segment we will explore the topic of fear. We will discuss this topic using Asian philosophical ideas. For the sake of confidentiality, all the names in the interviews have been changed. The first question we would like to address, is fear innate or a natural human tendency? What's your opinion on this, Drake? Well, Ryan, that's a great question coming from a great person. I don't know how you come up with this stuff. But I tell you, it's a great place to start for today's topic because there are many kinds of fear. You might describe two very different emotions as both being fear. Feelings of nervousness about stage fright are very different from fear of being, say, eaten by a bear. Now, before delving into Asian philosophy, let's take a look at some Western ideas of fear. Many explanations of human behavior have been related to the Darwinian theory of evolution and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In the theory of evolution, at the most basic or natural level, fear is a response to a fight or flight stimulus. Now this traces back to the primal urges to maintain our human fitness. Fitness is, of course, uh, humans' desire to preserve their own life and their desire to reproduce. Now we can all relate to the idea of some nomadic ancestor of ours standing, deciding either to run or stand up and fight a larger predator. I believe these most natural kind of fears are mostly based upon the threatening of one's life. Our biological purpose in life is to live long enough to procreate and advance the species. Now in a fight or flight scenario, humans are going to want to survive. These are what I believe to be natural fears. What do you guys think? Do you think all fears are rooted in these biological fears? Through the Western view that you've set up, I think that fears perhaps do stem from biological reasons, like you said with the fight or flight stimuli. However, I think throughout evolution, fears have been able to grow and adapt based on surroundings. For example, you brought up the fear of being eaten by a bear. Back in a time when America was first starting off, people didn't have truly reliable housing options like today, and forests full of bears were a regular thing. So this fear was realistic in order for people to survive. It was a reinforced fear because people would see and hear about other people being eaten by bears. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I'm sitting in my house here in Lexington, I'm not afraid of a bear coming into my home and eating me. I'm not afraid that I'll be eaten by a bear when I head out to get dinner or walk around the city. I no longer have that fear anymore because it's no longer vital towards my survival. Does that make sense? Well, Elaine, I have a question towards that. While you might not be afraid of a bear attacking you and eating you, people in the city do fear things such as shootings, muggings, getting hit by cars, stuff like that. These fears are still fear of one's own life. So how would these still not be considered a primordial fear? Are they not natural fears? Well, that's a great point, Ryan. Those fears are not technically natural by biological standards. I believe, like Drake said, natural fears are those that are primitive. The fear of being mugged or shot by someone wasn't possible until more recently, so I would not consider this as a primitive fear. You wouldn't see the first humans living in fear of someone shooting them. I mean, they didn't even have guns. But you would see them fearing attacks of different kinds. Perhaps you would see them fearing attacks by way of rocks or clubbings. The invention of the gun is what brought about the fear of being shot. No one used to be afraid of being shot until that invention. Ah, yeah, that reminds me of a quote from philosopher Paul Virilio. He says, the invention of the ship was the invention of the shipwreck. And that's like, you know, mass fears completely changed throughout time. When the gun was invented, maybe people stopped being afraid of wolves or something like that. 
But then, at some point, a man pulled a gun on another man, and then the fear of men using guns against other men was invented. Right. Such as school shootings being a relatively new fear. People all across the nation have this fear, and they didn't exist, say, 30 years ago. There have been many of these shootings, such as the Columbine, Sandy Hook, and the Virginia Tech shootings, which have caused mass hysteria in society. This is a very tangible fear that most people have, especially parents. This again ties back into the primordial fear of protecting one's own offspring. According to evolutionary standards, these fears may have evolved from those primordial fears due to technological advancements, as Drake just described. So far then, what we have said is that we confront our fears by inventing ways of overcoming old fears, but in doing so, we just create new fears. That actually reminds me of this interview I did with my friend Jim. Um, well I think that fear historically, just going back, you know, to our very beginnings, yeah, that was the best way to live. What was the scarier option? You know, going into these woods or traveling through this clearing or hunting a deer instead of a lion. I, you know, stuff like that. But now, today, I think that fears can be confronted because we're, we live in a day and age where we don't have to let our fears rule our day-to-day -day lives. You see, we're in an age where we can confront our fears. In fact, that's kind of the point of a lot of modern technology. Uh, it seems like every time a new invention arises, fears just continue to evolve into a different source. Man versus nature then becomes man versus man. Stuff like that. I believe most of what could be considered progress in society is exactly how we deal with these fears and how we overcome them. People that aren't afraid of change can do these things, change society. Fear inspires us to change things. We can actually track human progress by what we were afraid of at that point in time. For example, our society no longer fears something like polio, but now you can say we fear something like dying young. But then our definition of young is something that may have been a very long and fulfilling life just a couple hundred years ago. Well, Drake, while many people do have these fears, and society does try to find new ways of overcoming their fears. There is another way to get past fear controlling one's life. I would now like to direct your attention to some Asian philosophical points. In Buddhist culture, for instance, the monks teach detachment, whether this be from one's family, aspirations, desires, or even, yes, their fears. This is not to say that they must overcome their fear, but that instead they accept their fears and do not allow the fear to control themselves. In this way, their fear is relinquished and they are able to live free from this attachment. Buddhist monks are taught not to be attached to anything such as death, a fear you just described. So this would not be a fear of those followers. Death, I would challenge, is not a fear to a certain degree for some people and some cultures, especially those who believe in reincarnation, as there is no true death. Well, that's a good point, Ryan. But Buddhism is just one of many theologies in today's society. How do you explain fears for people that don't practice this particular belief? Well, there's many cultures that believe in some form of a cyclic life such as the very prominent Hindu culture. In Hinduism, they believe in the process of karma and dharma, the consequences of one's actions and one's personal duty, respectively. These would be the target of the, their fears if they were to have them, not these primordial fears, I would say. If they were to have this fear of death, they would not be truly practicing Hinduism, because there is no death, just rebirth. Actually, if anything, they would strive for this final death, which would cause them to break the curse of the cycle of rebirth. Similarly, traditional Buddhists believe their souls wandering through this ever-changing universe, and we are seeking permanence. 
that permanence can only be attached through enlightenment. I think it is human nature to seek permanence. We take solace in our memories, for example, because we think they are entirely ours to have. When I interviewed Peter, he linked an external fear of losing his belongings to an internal fear threatening the permanence of his memories. I moved into my own apartment for the first time. I ended up moving out, but I did it too late, so I had to leave a lot of stuff there. And, uh, cause like I missed the move out date or whatever, and the landlord was really mad. And I had to leave a lot of stuff there, so that was really like, it was terrifying to me that if I leave that thing there, I'll never remember any of the, you know, the fun times I had at that apartment, or maybe the fun times I had if I brought it from home or whatever. So Peter just described their fear is losing an external item, which will in turn cause the loss of a memory. This newly created fear of losing an item serves no purpose to his survival. Losing an arbitrary external item isn't going to threaten Peter's life. This fear just shows how the attachment to external items affects the internal state of mind, thus causing fear and suffering. That's a great point, Elaine. Understanding that the source of suffering comes from external attachment is a key concept in Buddhism. Because the external item has the potential to be lost, it has the potential to cause suffering, which is why any attachment to it is anti-Buddha nature. It's ever-changing. It's also against Buddha nature to be attached to a memory at all. By clinging to one's memories and experiences, one cannot firmly be grounded in the present. For example, if one starts to believe he is the sum of his experiences, he feels inclined to cling towards the ego, the self. One must understand that he is the experience as much as he is who experiences. In the Zen source book, it says, To be free from egoism is to have a deep understanding of transiency. This is the primary consideration. In Dogen's Actualizing the Fundamental Point, Chapter 6, he says, when you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might assume that the shore is moving. But when you keep your eyes closely on the boat, you can see that the boat moves. Similarly, if you examine myriad things with a confused body and mind, you might suppose that your mind and nature are permanence. When you practice intimately and return to where you are, it will be clear that nothing at all has unchanging self. By being grounded in the ever-changing present, you can see that fear, which comes from attachment, has no place in the mind. I really like how you brought up this idea of fear being a self-centered emotion, which attempts to cling to an unchanging self. It reminds me of the interview that was done with Jim. Jim essentially brings this idea up, as you will hear in his interview. To what extent should you fear what is out of your control? For example, you know, people live in fear that a uh, madman with a knife would come up and stab them. I think that you should never have that sort of fear and people who do have those fears are typically more egotistical because think about it. You believe that of all the people in the world, all the potential random victims of this man, that you're going to go out and be that man's victim? To me that's just the ego talking. This idea goes along with the quote about the shore seeming to move when really the boat is. To me, that's like a person thinking external items are creating the fears, when really it's the human ego thinking that they themselves are so special that bad things will happen to them. The internal mind is what is creating these fears based on this egotistical thinking. Even slight changes in what comforts people will cause them and their egos to be shaken, thus creating fears. You know, I think that's a very good point. People are always trying to find something that is constant in an ever-changing world. 
such as those items that Peter mentioned earlier. People form attachments, hoping that these will ground them and give them some sense of who they are as a person. Peter explained how the objects he is attached to give him memories of what happened at a certain time. However, those items or those times have changed, and he is no longer that person as he was at that time. The fear of taking these objects away, i.e., those memories away, are really just a fear of changing one's identity or a fear of a changing world. The world is far from constant, and it is hard for most people to accept this fact. Buddhism tries to free the self from these fears by pr practicing a form of detachment. When one un is unattached from items, the change in these items will not affect their mental state. This allows them to live with the times and not in the past. You know, we always say it's human nature to be afraid of change. We cling to traditions and use what has worked in the past. This is also why progress is mostly determined by what fears we overcome, which attachments we as a society break from. That's true. It's a very Buddhist way of thinking to say we as a society need to rid ourselves of attachments. Turning back to a more Western idea, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is set up like a pyramid. People must first achieve their basic needs, such as food, water, and shelter, before they can move on to the higher needs. The final stage in Maslow's hierarchy is self-actualization. From the stance of fear, once society reaches certain advancements, we no longer fear for our basic safety and basic needs. We then develop fears pertaining to our personal identities. Society gives people opportunities for fear to develop and become something other than for one's basic needs. Because our basic needs are fulfilled, fears take on new ideas and forms. One example of a non-basic fear is something I heard from a conversation I had with Greg. Here's how he described it. What is the biggest fear that you confront every day? Uh, that my existence is meaningless. Well, I think um, the meaninglessness of my existence I mean, that just seems so much more real. You know, I mean, you can get over you can get over some bad news. It's just it's just a temporary anxiety. I mean, you, you have to live with the fact that you know you're here for no reason every day. I, when I look at someone like my dad, I know he has the same fear as I do, but he thinks that God has a plan for him and that he's going to be floating up in heaven with the angels after he dies. And I mean, I don't think there is any plan for me and you know I, I feel like death's closing in on me it's a few decades away you know I don't uh, you know and I, I'm kind of scrambling to enjoy what I have left as you can hear he describes how his main fear deals with the fear of the meaninglessness of life this does not seem to stem from any fear of reproduction or fear of survival Exactly. This fear arose because Greg's basic needs were already met, and he no longer had to fear for obtaining basic necessities. It's really a luxury to be able to have these existential fears. That Elaine pointed out, these are similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the upper levels. This is a luxury humankind didn't ask for. I think we've evolved to a point where we don't have to have these primordial fears. Society has allowed us to construct fears that seem to focus on the individual, these new fears seem to me to be primarily self selfish in origin. Because when you remove the self from any external fear, the external fear still ties back to the person which it originally stemmed from. Therefore, this fear is still selfish. For clarity, one example of this was in an interview with Jim. He described an external fear for his daughter's safety and well-being. Here's an excerpt from that interview. So one time, 
it was actually this fear kind of took over was uh, we were feeding my daughter some human food from the big boys table at Olive Garden and she just coughed just a little bit and I freaked out and put her hands over her head because I did not want that little girl to choke at all and I completely overreacted. Notice how he describes his fear as totally selfless. He says his fear for his daughter's safety completely outweighs his own fears. Initially, this seems like a very selfless fear and would be accepted as such in a modern society. However, when you break it down, if his daughter, which is direct, his direct offspring, is harmed in any way, this hurts Jim's direct fitness, according to biological perspectives at least. In this light, the fear goes back to the natural fear of harming one's own fitness, which is centered around the self. I agree. To me, fear does seem primarily selfish. In fact, in the interview with Peter, he self-describes his fear as selfish. Here, take a listen. Where do you think that this fear might be coming from? This fear of losing things. It's completely selfish. It's a self-driven fear. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I don't want to lose things because they make me happy because I like the memories that are with them. It has nothing to do with anything other than what I want. So, I personally am agreeing with what you have been saying, where I think that the fear is self-driven. Now, to go back to this Asian philosophical perspective, Buddhism has what are called the five great fears, which consist of fear of dying, fear of sickness, fear of losing one's mind, fear of loss of livelihood, and fear of public speaking. These fears always lead to suffering, for they always express some sort of attachment. Attachment in itself is a selfish action, because one feels they have the right to be attached to an object or idea. In Buddhism, there's no room for positive effects of fear. In fact, the very important Heart Sutra, a Buddhist text, describes fear as a hindrance. The fact that we are describing fear as selfish and a hindrance makes it something that appears to be undesirable. This is why most people look for something that is the opposite, or a distraction from this fear, in order to avoid its effect on them. Yes, but before we talk about antonyms of fear, we need to understand what fear is exactly. Now, in my mind, there are two different distinctions of fear, which have two different antonyms. For the idea of fear that is directly causing you to feel bad at the present moment, the opposite is comfort. This feeling of discomfort is an important effect of feeling fear. It's what tells you it's bad, you know? The other definition of fear would be a negative anticipation of future events, which is like anxiety or worrying. Now, the opposite of this kind of fear would be hope, now, hope can be described as just an optimism that kind of pulls the mind in the direction of positivity. The first fear I describe deals with immediate effects of fear, and the second describes a kind of persistent discomfort that can build up with fears. I would have to disagree with you on this point, Drake. It seems like comfort would just be masking the fear that one feels within, without really solving or confronting the fear. I would suggest that the opposite of the first definition of fear would be acceptance in this case. If you accept something as it is and do not allow it to challenge or hinder you, it cannot possibly cause you fear. This in turn would give you comfort, but comfort is an effect of acceptance, not the source. In fact, many initial comforts can produce fears within them. One example would be in material goods. Initially, a material item, such as an expensive purse, might give someone comfort. However, the owner then becomes attached to this purse and fears losing or having the purse ruined in some way, shape, or form. This is why many religions, such as Buddhism in particular, teach detachment, especially from material items. If one does not have any material items they care to lose, they cannot fear them being stolen. This acceptance and contentedness is one 
in one having their materials stolen or kept with them is the only solace from fear, which makes it the opposite of it. I see your thought process there, Ryan. In fact, when you said one who does not have material items they care to lose, they cannot fear them being stolen. That reminded me of in the Analects when Confucius says, the only way to stop crime is to stop valuing things. Without attachment, there is no fear. Yeah, that's really similar to a different section of the Analects when Confucius says, being without anxiety or fear, does this constitute what we call the superior man? The master replied that, when inter internal examination discovers nothing wrong, what is there to be anxious about? What is there to fear? It's really interesting here that Confucius separates anxiety and fear. That goes back to what I believe it was Drake who said that there were two distinct types of fear, one being the fear that is associated with discomfort, the other being the fear associated with anticipation of future events. It also relates to a topic we briefly touched on earlier about the attachment to external items causing internal turmoil. Confucius here isn't even talking about external items. His whole point is that the internal state of mind is what has the power to cause fear and suffering. The external item isn't inflicting pain unless the internal mind allows it to. Now that there is something I think most of the Asian philosophers we've studied could agree on. Fear can't affect you unless you allow it to. Now this goes back to a quote by Lao Tzu. Be careful with what you water your dreams with. Water them with worry and fear and you will produce weeds that choke the life from your dream. Water them with optimism and solutions and you will cultivate success. Here he views fear as an option or a choice and we must choose to let it affect us. But the question is, should we let fear influence us? Now, we couldn't possibly do this podcast without including arguably the most famous quote ever spoken on the topic of fear. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. So here's the question. Should we fear fear? Or is fear an integral part of the human existence that should be embraced and examined in order to live more fully? I think this quote is really true. In many cases, people allow their fear to paralyze them and become so consumed in their fears that it becomes hard to cope with. Things such as arachnophobia, claustrophobia, and many others are very dangerous conditions that consume a person's life if left unchecked. Fear is natural, but only up until the point where it hinders your experience of your everyday life. I think Asian philosophy would agree with this. However, they do strive to get to rid themselves of these fears in order to live their lives free from suffering. In the interview with Greg, it seems as though his fear has started to become something more than what it should be. Here's a segment of the interview. Like, it's usually the first thing on my mind when I wake up. You know, it's, it's it, um, it gets me when I see like all of us walking to class like, dress similarly with our backpacks. Everybody's tired. Everybody's drinking coffee. Some people are on bikes. Some people are on their skateboard things. But it's just... We're all doing the exact same thing for the same few reasons. And it's... it's and I don't think most people have ever stopped and thought, why? Which is kind of disturbing to me. It's just... It's always at the back of my mind. And it, I, I feel like... I have a harder time, I feel like 
I'm more afraid of it because I have a harder time not noticing this stuff. You know, I feel like most people can focus on other things easier, and I, I just, I've never been able to. Here, Greg describes how his fear is the first thing that he thinks about in the morning, most days. This fear that he has is something that is beginning to take over his everyday life, something that he can have an extremely detrimental effect on a person. This, of course, should be the only real fear people have, that fear will consume a person. This just becomes a vicious cycle of fearing fear, but fear is something not to be taken lightly. Greg's fear is being reinforced each time he sees people going through monotonous stages in life. This monotony has become a source of his fear, and perhaps this is because he is questioning the reasons as to why people are doing what they're doing. If he has any reason to believe that people do what they do without the right intentions, he may begin to question if individual lives are even important or necessary, thus leading to a fear of a meaningless existence. Today, when you sit around and live in fear of a meaningless existence without doing anything about it, uh, to me that would definitely seem like that fear is a negative thing. Now, I think the correct way to handle something like this, this kind of existential fear, is to turn it into something you can control. I think this goes the same way for a lot of fears. Now, in this example, in order to overcome this fear, you must tell yourself that you are indeed in control of the purpose of life. However, many fears that may be considered luxury fears could relate to the feeling of being too much in control. Take, for example, someone who is afraid of a big test. Fear comes from nervousness that you are indeed in control of the decision, how you do on the test. Believing in free will can be a scary thing. For example, if you're having an existential crisis, fear that someone may not be able to make sense of it all can foster more fears. People live in fear that they won't be able to find their own purpose in life. Now, many of the Asian philosophies we've studied have all embraced the ability to understand that one can never understand the enigma of life. I guess just some fears people have stem from different places. Some fears of not being in control, while others fear being in control. This can be shown in some people how they like having options to choose from when others prefer being told what to do exactly. Well, what you've just said, Ryan, could just be considered preferences. People have different preferences, so I don't know if I would consider one person preferring to have options while another person prefers to be told what to do as being a fear. You can dislike things without fearing them, so it's important to keep in mind that fear and dislike are two distinct emotions. Well, Elaine, that actually brings up a huge issue. You see, as we've gone throughout this podcast analyzing fear, it jumped out to me that perhaps just by naming fear as being a fear, we are letting fear control us. Now, the Tao Te Ching warns us to mistrust language, especially when the binary creation of words brings about confusion surrounding what is really at hand. Perhaps, instead of distinguishing between fear and comfort or fear and hope, we should understand that any human experience lies somewhere on the spectrum between the two. So by assigning feelings such as fear or comfort to such experiences, we are allowing that feeling to describe the act Sorry, we are allowing that feeling we use to describe the experience to cloud how we actually feel. For example, when you plug a cord into a power outlet, there's always a small chance that you can be electrocuted and die. But by worrying or becoming anxious about plugging in that outlet doesn't change the likelihood of you being shocked. 
We must understand that everything lies on this spectrum between fear and comfort in order to see how we should act. We should not be anxious about the future or worry about events because when these fears control us, we are not grounded in the present. Unfortunately, Drake, I would have to disagree with you on this. I believe that a person has to identify this feeling they have as a fear before they can overcome it or accept it. As we have discussed previously, fear is innate. This can be seen through both Asian and scientific philosophies. These innate fears are of not being able to reproduce and the fear of one's own survival. So no matter what, we're going to have these fears. Once we identify and explain the fears rationally, only then can we move forward so they do not consume us as we have also discussed. The Tao Te Ching does discuss the issue of naming things, but I do not believe that by naming fear it will thereby cause fear to consume us. Fear, just as anything else, can be controlled by a person. I think I'm going to have to agree with Drake on this one. I think by naming fear, it definitely has a certain ability to control people. I think that is one of the things that specifically makes fear, fear. The fact that it is difficult, if not impossible, to control once it's been given a name. I think perhaps it can be covered up or temporarily overcome. But eventually, that fear will creep back into one's mind because it does lie on the spectrum Drake was talking about. That spectrum, the human emotions, are susceptible to change. And actually, as the Buddha teaches, this attachment to ideas or objects that are ever-changing is the root of suffering. Well, allow me to explain it in a different way, then. I'll use the example of sleep. Sleep is a necessary function for all animals and sentient beings, not just humans. All animals experience some form of exhaustion or tiredness when they are up for an extended period of time. One needs only to look at a dog to see the truth of this. When humans invented the word for sleep, or tiredness, this did not then create the feeling of tiredness. By naming the feeling, it did not create it, nor did it give the feeling control over us. Being tired can be controlled by a various amount of methods, the most effective being sleep, obviously. This is identical to the feeling of fear, but just applied in a different way. One can control fear in different ways. Just by naming fear, it does not automatically give control over us. Okay, well then how does one in today's world control their fear? You gave the example of controlling tiredness by sleeping. That's giving in to the feeling of tiredness. So should people just give in to their fears then? What do you think that would look like? Well, perhaps letting fear control you is not always terrible. If fear of being electrocuted stops you from being electrocuted, would that not be a productive fear? Couldn't we say that fear is in fact good? Okay, that's a good question. It actually directly relates to the interview I did with Peter. Here's how our interview ended. Okay, do you think this fear has caused you to live a life of fear or not really? No. No. Maybe slightly more cautious with my things than some people, but I don't think it's really a life of fear as much as a life of a healthy respect for loss. Okay. Is that along the lines of what you were saying, Drake? That fear can lead to perhaps a healthy amount of caution? Yeah, I think that relates to it very well. Perhaps this is a question of to what scope your fear extends. Perhaps in this case, by naming fear as a fear, we can distance ourselves from that which brings about fear. You'll exercise more caution around that thing you're afraid of. Now, do you guys think that fearing things that you are still in control over could be a rational fear? Personally, I don't think that it could be rational. If one has the ability to control the fear, they're in control of the outcome of the situation for which they fear. 
It just doesn't make sense to me that if you're able to control what you fear, that you should still be able to fear it. For example, fear of heights. Many people have a fear of heights, but some will still go skydiving, rock climbing, and other vertical endeavors. Eventually, they conquer their fears and learn to love those activities. Heights are no longer something they fear when they start to actively control it. It's all about bringing it to become something that you can control. When someone fears something in their own control, perhaps they're only doubting their abilities. To go back to the test example, if you had complete mastery of test content, you would not be afraid of the test. This makes me think, perhaps we don't need to fear fear itself. We should fear fearing fear. But wouldn't that lead back to the vicious cycle of fear that we mentioned earlier? Now you don't have fear of an object. You still have fear, it's just of fear itself. Elaine, you fool. Do you not recall the teachings of the Analects? Be cautious in your ways, but don't be cautious out of fear. Caution itself is a virtue of an examined life and being present in the moment. If the source of your caution is fear, you are technically doing the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. Simply live in caution up to a point. Confucius in the Analects warns about being too cautious as well as being too careless. There is a delicate balance that one should be careful to lean too far on either extreme. You're right, Ryan. All these Asian philosophies truly teach the value of liberating oneself from fear in order to live freely and virtuously. Well, if everyone's in agreement here, I think that'd be a great point to end on. Thanks for speaking today, Drake and Elaine. Uh, my pleasure, Ryan. This has been an amazing experience. Thanks for having us, dude. Well, but of course, anything for you guys. For our listeners out there, make sure to tune in next time for our segment on Put That Thing Back Where It Came From or So Help Me with Dr. Wazowski.